Do you ever think about do you ever think about ministry in your life and then wonder how those two things are supposed to fit together? Do you ever wonder how to reconcile your time between a daily living, daily responsibilities, the routines, you know, that are necessary, and then the ministry of the gospel that we as Christians are all called to? I personally spent many years pondering those questions. Lord, how do I, how do, I do my job over here and still give enough time to the ministry over here? How do I spend time with my family and still spend enough time with you? How do I take care of all that needs to be done in my daily life and still give adequate time and attention to my Christian life, my, uh, my ministry life, my spiritual life? Because I, I saw the two for a long time as very different aspects of the same life. There was a divide in my, in my mind and in my heart between what I saw as, as being secular and what I saw as being sacred. And so I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to balance those two in my life. And it wasn't until I really began to study the scriptures in earnest and in general, but in biblical Hebrew culture uh, specifically in particular, that I realized that in God's economy, there was no separation between secular and sacred. For his people, it was all sacred. It all belonged to him. All matters big and small, from the great uh, annual feasts of the Lord to time spent uh, in the synagogue to quiet conversations with friends and family to carrying a pail of water home. It was all sacred work. It all belonged to God. In fact, the separation between secular and sacred is a product of Greek Hellenism or dualism. That's a worldview that separates life into contrasting ideas without God at the center of it. It began really with the Greek philosophers and really came into maturity during the Enlightenment and it has had tremendous influence in modern Western culture. Hellenism assumes that the highest expression of reality is man. And certainly we see that, uh, that concept being promoted in the media and in our government and in our universities, which means we get to determine what is secular and what is sacred in our own lives. And of course, that can be very subjective, different for everyone, and yet that is decidedly an unscriptural worldview, okay? The biblical worldview is the one that God created and designed and imparted, gave to his people, which we call holism. It's the Hebraic mindset that every single aspect of life, big and small, is connected to the eternal purposes of God. Just, just listen to what Moses says to the Hebrew people in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I, that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. <laughs> God's word to his people was intended to infiltrate every single aspect of their lives. 
And lest we think this was only for the Jews, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, where he's speaking to a church predominantly full of Gentile Christians. He says, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And then in Colossians 3.16 and 17, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Sounds a lot to me like the instructions given to the Jews through Moses. Okay, everything that we accomplish in this life, from the seemingly insignificant to the most profound, all of it is to be done in Him and by Him and through Him because it all serves an eternal purpose. And so it is all, every bit of it, to be done for His glory and in His name, which means there is no separation between the different aspects of our lives because it all belongs to and it all serves God. So when you go to church, you go for God. When you go to the grocery store, you go for God. When you work, you work for God. When you spend time with family and friends and complete strangers, you do it for God because we exist to glorify Him. So that every breath and every appointment and every conversation and all of our effort, all that we do, everything is done in His service. And the reason that is important for us to consider is because that truth, once accepted, that truth will fundamentally change the way that we understand our calling, our purpose in this life, right? Because once we see every aspect of our lives as sacred and unto God, then we're no longer trying to balance two opposing facets of life. No, we're, we're simply trying to bring as much glory to God as possible in every single thing that we do every single day. And that will completely revolutionize the rest of your life. So instead of seeing ministry as a part of our lives, we really should see our entire lives as our ministry. But I think we often don't do that because, admittedly, that can be very unsettling. <laughs> when you begin to look at everything that you do, everything, as unto God, then you really have to start considering why you're doing what you're doing and how you're doing it and whether or not you should be doing something else, right? And that scares us. So it's easier to keep all of that separated. It's easier to manage God when we can keep Him in our ministry box over here and the rest of our life in its own category. But that's not the way that God created us. It's not God's way. And He cannot be managed. And so until we really see our lives the way that God sees them, look, we, we won't find true peace and fulfillment in our journey. Because every single believer is called to gospel ministry, every single one of us. But if we try to run from that calling or hide from that calling or fight against that calling, we are running and hiding and fighting in futility. Resisting God's calling is a miserable way to live. It's what the ancient writers 
used to refer to as kicking against the goats. When, when the oxen were being driven in the fields, if they tried to stop when they were told to go, they would use sharp sticks to prod uh, the oxen. But if they refused and kicked against the goats, they would just hurt themselves even more and the prodding would become worse. So to resist was miserable and futile. And so when Saul, the great persecutor of the church, who later, of course, became the Apostle Paul, when he was traveling on the road to Damascus, he was blinded by a light from God, which caused him to fall to the ground. And in Acts 26, 14, he explains that he heard the voice of God saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words... I have a plan for you, Saul, a calling from long before you ever existed. And so to run from or hide from or fight against that calling was like those oxen who would kick against the goads. It was a miserable way to live. And of course, we know that Saul did finally submit to Christ and he fulfilled his calling and yet doing so at great peril to himself. He routinely exhausted all that he had, and by the end of his life, he gave everything in sacred service to God as he lived out the gospel, which is precisely what scares us today. The idea that if we stop running and hiding and fighting against the call of God in our lives, that we will have to give up some things and live differently and reprioritize our lives, which is all true, by the way, because the call of the gospel is a dangerous calling. And it will require all that we have to give. It, it will routinely exhaust your abilities and talents and resources. And it will challenge every fiber of your being. And yet, we will never find true peace and fulfillment, I am convinced, any other way. Because this is what we were designed for. Long before we were ever born. So look, why not run toward the call? Why not stop hiding and stop fighting against it and see what amazing things God will accomplish through us? For that is truly the most fulfilling and purposeful life that we could ever live. And of course, as always, our great example to follow is Jesus himself, as we'll see in our story today as we continue our study through the gospel according to John. As Jesus has completed now his farewell discourse to his disciples He's prayed for himself, he's prayed for them, he's prayed for us, as we saw last week in chapter 17. And now the story of the passion, the ultimate fulfillment of his calling begins. So let's read it together at John chapter 18. If you want to turn there with me, we'll start with the first two verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Jesus and his disciples leave the city to head out to the garden where they would often meet to rest and pray. And if we pay attention to the detail here given by John, even this short journey from the, the city to the garden together has so much prophetic significance, it really... It really demonstrates beautifully the intention of Jesus to fulfill his calling 
no matter the cost to him personally. John says that they crossed the brook Kidron. If you read that in the, the ancient Greek, the original Greek, the brook Kidron is described as a kimaros. In the Arabic, it's a wadi, which is a storm runlet. It's a, a, a dry gulch that acted as a storm runoff through the Kidron Valley, which Jesus and his disciples had to cross in order to get to the garden. Here's where it gets interesting. This was the afternoon before the Passover, which is when the priest would sacrifice the lambs on the altar of the temple. And in the historical records that we have from Jesus' day, they tell us that as many as 250,000 lambs were slain by hundreds of priests. And so there were drains at the altar areas that would carry the blood from a quarter of a million lambs, along with the water used for ritual cleansings, down from the city to the otherwise dry brook of Kidron. In fact, in fact the word Kidron means black brook or gloomy brook, probably because of the crimson-stained banks that were always there. And so, just as Jesus and his disciples make their way to the garden, they have to cross that brook that has been flowing with blood and water from a quarter of a million lambs. In John 19.34, at Jesus' crucifixion, where he fulfilled his calling, John says one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. The prophetic overtones are astounding, and I can't imagine what Jesus must have been thinking and feeling as he crossed over that brook, carrying the blood and water from those sacrificial lambs through the valley, knowing good and well where his calling was about to lead him. But he knew that his life was his ministry, so Jesus didn't run from his calling. The garden that they entered was known as Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. And verse 1 says that he and his disciples entered the garden, later came out. That language suggests in the Greek that it was a walled garden, which means this was a well-defined location where Jesus and his disciples would often meet, which also meant that it was very familiar, as the passage says, to Judas. Back in chapter 13, verse 27, referring to Judas's imminent betrayal of Jesus... Jesus says to him at the Last Supper, what you are going to do, do quickly. And then Judas immediately gets up and leaves. So Jesus clearly knows what Judas is up to. He knows that Judas is gunning for him. He knows the danger of his calling and the looming threat to his own personal safety and security. So where does he go? To the one place where he knows that Judas will find him. The walled garden where they often met to rest and pray. If Jesus wanted to run from his calling, he could have very easily used Judas's departure, which was hastened by Jesus. He could have used that as a diversion in order to buy him and the disciples some time to head off into a direction completely unknown to Judas. But Jesus didn't run from his calling. He ran headlong right toward it because it was the only path to fulfillment. Okay, we can run from our calling, and many people do. But at the end of the day, all that will do for you is make you tired. 
because you cannot escape the purpose that was created for, for you. In Romans 11.29, Paul explains that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, all right? If, if you were called out of darkness and into the light, then you are called to live out the gospel in every single aspect of your life. So why do we run the other way? It's because it's a dangerous calling that we're living out. At times it is unpredictable. At times it is fraught with risk and uncertainty. And at times it requires great sacrifice and an ongoing submission to something bigger than just our lives. It is a dangerous calling. And sometimes the other direction is very attractive, especially when you're crossing over points along your journey that constantly remind you of the sacrifices that you will have to make in order to fulfill that calling. The other direction can start looking like the best option when you know that the road ahead won't be easy. That's why it's called the narrow road. Jesus said the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard. It is a hard way that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Jesus never promised us an easy way, but he did promise that he would be with us. That's the difference. And in that, he offered us peace and blessing and fulfillment beyond our wildest dreams. He said, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. John 16, 33. He also said, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. That's blessing. The, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 10, 9 and 10. It may be a dangerous calling, but I'm telling you it is the only one worth living. And every moment that you put it off is a moment lost. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to lose any more moments than I have to because I think about all of those moments in my own life that have shaped and changed me. Moments that have catapulted me toward God. Conversations that I've had. Maybe a sermon I heard or something a professor said to me. An embrace when I didn't deserve it or some correction that I desperately needed in my life. A gift that humbled and blessed me or a hand to help me up when I was hurting. Moments when God used other people who were being obedient to their calling to speak profoundly into my life in ways that have changed me forever. Gospel moments where I got a glimpse of Jesus in other people and it floored me because you can't have a true revelation of Jesus Christ and not be deeply affected, affected by it. The power of Christ in us is so much greater than most of us, I think, probably realize. When we let His Spirit guide us into all that is our calling, instead of running the other direction, He will not only reveal Himself to you, but listen, He will reveal Himself to others through you. That's when you begin to realize the true power of the dangerous calling that you've been called to. When you experience Him being revealed through you to great effect in other people's lives because you can't have a true revelation of Jesus Christ and not be deeply affected by it. 
as we'll see in our story. Let's keep reading verses 3 through 9. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. I'm sure their tone was a little different the second time. Jesus answered them, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. So Judas gathers a band of soldiers. These were Roman soldiers and some temple police from the chief priests and Pharisees as well. And in the original Greek language, the band of soldiers is described as a spira, which constituted a Roman cohort. That was a thousand men. Now in practice, the Roman cohort in Jesus' day was typically comprised of between six and 700 soldiers. But when you add in the temple police, it is estimated that there were about a thousand men with lanterns and torches and weapons sent out to capture one man. Now hearing this story as a kid growing up, I always pictured about 15 or 20 soldiers with Judas coming to arrest Jesus. Can you imagine the sight and the sound of this mass of soldiers with torches and lanterns, the, the metal of their swords and armor clanging together as they approach the garden that evening, a thousand strong? It, it must have been a terrifying sight. And part of the reason they sent so many after Jesus, by the way, is because they weren't just concerned about Jesus and his immediate disciples. At this point, Jesus had become immensely popular among the masses, so there was a fear uh, of an uprising upon his arrest. And so sending out a thousand would much better prepare the authorities, of course, for any potential mob violence, which was always a concern for the, Romo the Romans every Passover. According to uh, the first century scholar, Flavius Josephus, he says he recorded that there were over 2,700,000 people crowded into the city for Passover. Because it was the night before the Passover, there was a full moon, and yet John says they were carrying lanterns and torches, which seems a, a bit unnecessary given the size of this band of soldiers looking for one man during a full moon in a known location. But Gethsemane was an olive grove, and if you've ever seen an olive tree, they are gnarled and twisted and can become very large as they grow old. In fact, I think we have a picture of one. Can you put that up? This is one olive tree. You see the person down to the right? That's one tree. Now, imagine packing them together into a grove or a garden. It looks like something out of a mystical fantasy movie when you see an entire olive grove. And the opportunities for hiding places, as you can imagine, in that garden during that Passover full moon would have almost been endless. And the soldiers knew that well. So they brought lanterns and torches, probably expecting Jesus and his band of followers to be hiding away among these massive olive trees. But Jesus didn't hide from his calling. 
He didn't sink back into the shadows or even hide behind his disciples. When his calling came in the form of a thousand battle-hardened soldiers seeking to arrest him, Jesus stepped forward and said, Whom do you seek? When they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, he responded with the same words given to Moses by God in Exodus 3.14 when Moses asked the Lord who he should tell the Israelites had sent him. In the ancient Greek, it's the words ego emi, literally means I am, or I am who I am. And the moment he spoke those words, revealing his true identity, a thousand battle-hardened soldiers with their lanterns and torches and weapons and armor fell to the ground. What a sight that must have been. Can you imagine it? It's no wonder that in just a few moments, Peter has the courage to lunge forward into the horde of soldiers and cut the ear off of one of the men. Again, as a kid, I used to wonder how Peter could be so courageous in the face of all these soldiers when just moments later in the face of a servant girl, he denies even knowing Jesus three times out of fear of his own life. That never made any sense to me. But it makes perfect sense now when you understand what was happening here. You see, all throughout Scripture, in the book of Ezekiel, uh, Daniel, Acts, Revelation, all throughout Scripture, when God revealed Himself to people, they would routinely fall over. In uh, Revelation 1.17, describing the divine revelation of Christ to him on the island of Patmos, John wrote, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Okay, When Jesus revealed himself to these soldiers, they collapsed to the ground. And if Jesus simply speaking his name can knock all of these men down, Peter must have felt invincible at that moment. <laughs> what a moment it was. Jesus knew the danger of his calling. Verse 4 says that he knew all that would happen to him. And yet he didn't hide from his calling, even though he had every opportunity to. They would have certainly seen and heard the cohort of soldiers coming from a long way off. He had plenty of time to hide among the olive trees, even if simply to delay the inevitable for a few more hours, but he didn't. Jesus stepped forward and he said, I am. I am. You see, Jesus wasn't afraid of the thousand soldiers. He wasn't afraid of their swords or torches or armor. He wasn't afraid of anything that men could do to him because he knew that the Father was with him. John 8, 29, Jesus said, He who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. In John 10, 30, he said, I and the Father are one. You see, Jesus knew that he was never alone, so he never needed to hide from his calling because he knew that the Father was always with him. And listen, we are never alone. In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus said, I'm with you always. In John 10, 27 and 28, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Our calling may well be a dangerous one. But we have absolutely no reason to fear. Why? Because he's always with us. That's the difference. And no matter what weapons are formed against us, there is nothing on this earth 
that can never take us away from Him. Yet sometimes we hide from our calling. We try and put it off. We sink back into the shadows if only to buy a little more time before we have to give up those things that we really want to hold on to, you know, our safety, our security, our, our plans, our idols, our kingdoms. Sometimes we try to buy a little more time before we have to face the truth that following Jesus Christ is a dangerous calling that will probably lead you to places you never thought you'd go and have you doing things that maybe you've imagined but certainly never thought you'd actually do. Following Jesus Christ is an adventure of epic proportions and it is not for the faint of heart. It is for those who are filled with the confidence that the great I am is always with them. And this is what Peter was finally experiencing as we continue to read this profound moment of courage in the presence of Christ, albeit misdirected and, as we'll see, short-lived. Let's uh, finish the story for today with verses 10 through 14. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So Peter is carrying with him what is described in the, in the Greek as a, a machaira. It's a long knife, really, or a short sword. Uh, it wasn't what we would typically think of today when we think of a sword. Much more like a dagger, really. And the short sword of that time period was designed for stabbing, not slicing. And, and so Peter's method of attack was unsuccessful, uh, it, at least if he was trying to kill the man, which we don't know for certain. But more than anything, it underscores his state of mind in that moment. Outnumbered by a thousand soldiers and temple police, this fisherman is ready to start taking them out one at a time with nothing more than a long knife that he probably didn't even really know how to use. But hey, he had Jesus standing right next to him. The same guy who just knocked them all down with the sound of his voice. So why not, right? Peter was more than ready to fight. But Jesus didn't fight against his calling. In fact, he rebukes Peter, which Peter should have been getting used to by now. <laughs> he says, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Shall I not fulfill my calling? You see, Jesus could have tried to run from his calling, but he, he didn't. He could have tried to hide from his calling, but he didn't. And here he is, obviously able to overwhelm those who have come for him by simply speaking his name, and yet he doesn't fight against the calling, even though it would mean dying on a cross. Peter, on the other hand, as we'll see in our next installment in the next portion of this chapter, Peter, who is more than ready to stand up for Jesus when he's standing right next to him, in just a few moments denies even knowing Jesus. You see, Peter begins to struggle, as we'll see, and fight against his own calling. Why? Because all of a sudden it doesn't look like he thought it would. 
right? Peter and the other disciples, and in fact, pretty much every other Jew who knew about Jesus, they were expecting him to lead an uprising, an insurrection against their Roman oppressors. And in Peter's mind, they were off to a really good start when Jesus simply speaks his name and they all fall over. So imagine the shock and disappointment and complete befuddlement that Peter must have felt when Jesus said, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And then he voluntarily allows them to arrest him and take him away. And the next thing you know, Peter isn't standing next to Jesus anymore. His entire vision of the future reign of Christ has just been shattered in a moment. And now his own calling to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to testify to the gospel, looks nothing like he imagined it would. And the first moment that Peter gets an opportunity to actually be a witness for Jesus, he fights against it. He lashes out against his own calling, which we'll talk more about next time. But I would submit to you this morning that we often do the very same thing in our own lives. When our calling doesn't look like what we thought it would, when our ministry isn't shaping up like we planned, when living out the gospel gets dangerous, lonely, unpopular, expensive, costly in many ways, it is easy then, I think, for us to fight against it because it's not working out like we thought it would. And that's when we have to ask ourselves the question, Am I committed to the call of God in my life or am I committed to my own version of the call of God in my life? Because we like to think about our calling, our ministry, our spiritual life as this thing that we have over here and, and we dive into it when we have some extra time or we pour into it when we have some extra resources laying around and as long as it works out favorably for us, we stay committed, we stay the course. But as soon as something goes sideways, as soon as someone makes us angry in the church, as soon as the pastor disappoints us, as soon as our ministry doesn't go as planned, we can experience the same kind of shock and disappointment that Peter felt. One minute he's ready to slay a thousand men for Jesus with a knife that he doesn't even know how to use. And the next he's ready to chuck it all and go back to fishing because his calling wasn't working out like he thought it would fickle. What Peter had to learn, and honestly what we have to learn, is that our entire life, with all of its ups and downs, with all of its unexpected moments, with all of its risk and uncertainty, and yes, even danger, our entire life is our calling to be lived out in his service for his glory according to his gospel, come what may. And so instead of fighting against that calling when it, when it isn't going as planned, we have to understand that he considers every moment of our lives as a sacred part of that calling, even the parts that don't work out like we wanted them to. You see, God isn't just sovereign over our wins. He's sovereign over our failures. Just read the story of Joseph and his family. God is sovereign over all of it. Our lives, the expected and the unexpected parts, our lives and our calling are all tied together. They cannot be separated. It's all sacred to God. And the danger in it for us is that we don't know what's going to happen next. 
It doesn't always work out like we thought it would, like we planned. It is a dangerous calling. But listen, we need not fight against it. And I'll tell you why. Because the real danger, the real danger of this calling to following Jesus Christ, the real danger isn't for us at all. Because we know that he's with us always. He said no one can snatch you out of my hand. That's the safest place you could ever be on this earth. We may not know what's coming, but he's with us. The real danger isn't for us at all. The real danger is the damage that you will inflict on the enemy if you refuse to give up, even when it's hard, even when you're weary, even when you're hurting, even when you're shocked and disappointed, even when nothing is going as planned, the worst thing that ever happened to the devil was Jesus willingly going to the cross, answering the call on his life. If you will refuse to give up and instead answer the call of God on your life, come what may, you will inflict lethal wounds eternal wounds against the enemy of our souls because your entire life, all of it, the good, the bad, and the ugly, all of it, when it is submitted to God, will become a testimony to the world that you are a child of God, called by God, and a member of His holy church, and the enemy cannot stand against that. Make no mistake. The calling of God is dangerous, indeed because the enemy cannot stop it. And so if you've been running from your calling, why not stop running? If you've been hiding from it, maybe just trying to buy yourself a little more time before you really embrace that call, why not stop hiding? Maybe you've been fighting against it wrestling with it because it isn't unfolding in your life the way that you expected it to. And I would simply ask you this morning, why not, why not stop fighting? Why not embrace that calling and see what amazing things God wants to do in your life? Let's pray.